so good to see you guys uh, mm-hmm. good to see you we took a bit of a hiatus and we're we're back in the saddle again aerosmith yeah. style yeah. and uh here we are we're gonna do this thing again the show stays alive chris how's yes. it going man we got chris scovira he is our editor-in-chief he runs the show he's our producer mm-hmm. he is the man behind the machine and it looks like you lost some weight, pal. Yeah. So uh, between our last, sh- actually, when was our last show? End of September. Yeah. What do we take a straight month off? Did we? I don't know, dude. Time is irrelevant. Oh, uh, wow. Come on. <laughs> no, I, uh, I, I'm at the tail end of a diet right now. I am uh, wrapping up Whole 30, so that's cutting out processed carbs, sugar, alcohol, basically anything that makes you feel good. So I have to eat whole foods and uh, not drinking and combined with that, I've lost 20 pounds. Wow, wow man. Congrats. You look incredible, dude. Yeah, thank Seriously. You. Yeah. So what's the plan going going forward? Are you going to maintain this or are you going straight alcohol alcoholic mode <laughs> starting in a few days? Uh, so on, on uh, probably – what is the, so probably the 31st because it's only 30 days i'm going to reintroduce alcohol into my system uh just alcohol so i'm going to maintain because the whole thing is it's an elimination diet to <laughs> you're gonna go you're gonna, like <laughs> all right fuck food fuck water <laughs> no 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 so it's, it's it's meant to see how your gastrointestinal tract works so you've been on you've been eating clean for a month and then you do things in small increments to see what truly bothers you. If I have a severely negative reaction to alcohol, probably going to just cut it out. Dude, you're going to shit wow. a mud river when you oh, introduce. Yoshi can attest to this. It me. does happen. <laughs> it does happen. You're going to have a white claw and it's going to yeah. be over. But uh, yeah, no, it's been great. Yoshi... We're in different buildings now. Yeah, about time, huh? We we can no Aaron Aaron can no longer accuse us of cheating on this show and having the same score. You guys are suddenly gonna have very different scores. <laughs> very different Let me tell you. you know what? Completely different. <laughs> it's suddenly Aaron Aaron's theory will Yoshi. be put to the test. Uh, hopefully yes. uh, we have this similar uh rankings today, Chris. Otherwise we're screwed. You know? <laughs> Mine are right uh, there, written on a sticky note. But yes, uh Chris, uh you moved to a new home and I'm yep. In a hotel. Uh, that's so excuse the bad lighting for this episode and future episodes, folks. But uh, this is what I got at the moment. So I'm I'm stuck up in a Marriott right now in Utah. And uh, Chris, you moved. How's how's your new home? 
It's pretty great. As you can see behind me, I've gone full gamer setup with my fancy schmancy LED lights. Nice. So you guys are in three different parts of California. That's we right. got where are you, Chris? Pasadena. Pasadena. Still in LA, right, Paul? That's no right. no sudden moves. No moves. And and Aaron's back up north in uh in Sacktown area. Yeah, Elk Grove. Elk Beautiful. Grove. Yes. Cool. Well, Chris, grown. congrats on on the uh, on sticking to it. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, awesome. I wish you the best in your elimination diet and figuring out <laughs> what uh, you're going to be welcoming back into your life. But uh, stick with it. You look great. Thank you. I feel great too. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, feel, do you feel what's like the major differences that you've noticed? Uh, sleep and the ability to focus. Oh my god. Uh, I've I've coupled that with because uh, I'm California sober. I'm not actually fully sober. What does that uh, mean? It means you smoke weed. <laughs> oh, <laughs> sure. Um, so I've combined that with, uh, and this is not a sponsor, brain health formula. It's what does that do? It's basically the GNC version of Alpha Brain. Oh, that's right. You mentioned that to so me. It's just nootropics. And... <laughs> yes, it's mushrooms. No. <laughs> I take a daily mushroom supplement. Ashwagandha, bro? No. You're on that Stamets 7, right? Yeah, I've been on Stamets 7 for about two years now. And uh, do you notice, like, if you were to stop taking it, would do you think you would notice a difference? Oh, yeah. Yeah, when I when I take a couple weeks off, then I'm like, oh, I got to go buy more of that. And then I go, I take a good dose and, like, go work out. My mind is, like, fire. I should actually take it before I do this podcast. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Maybe I'm I should I'm on the alpha brain myself. Yo, I'm going to go grab some mushroom stuff. <laughs> okay, then I guess we'll go to Paul next. Paul, Paul Jackson. Paul, what are you taking? <laughs> yeah, what drugs are you on, man? Uh, Paul oh, Jackson God. is a is a writer, a former oh. radio host, a, a, one of the greatest improv actors I've ever come across. Um, what's your life been like this past month, Paul? What's going on? Well, I'll keep uh, uh, Chris at the table, of course, with, uh, with health. Uh, so I'll reveal that back in... Well, let's see. Before September and July, I went in for a heart scan, and based on Shit. yeah, I know. So uh, just as you know, <clears throat> you're as you get closer to forty-five, it's just I'm I'm laying some bre breadcrumbs for all of you. Just something to think about, because that gastrointestinal thing is very true, Chris. Uh, having had to clean my uh, my colon out for a scoping, I remember coming back on any kind of food. It was like, oh yeah, here it comes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but yeah, I went in for heart scan and, uh, it wasn't like my cholesterol was off. It was like two years in a row. The, the bad cholesterol was sort of hovering between good and bad. So we did a heart scan. There is, I do have plaque on my left ventricle. So when I saw that, I'm like, wow, how do you treat that? Well, we hope that it's impacted like the snow that you've seen behind me, because if you've ever seen that commercial, uh, for uh, the medicine that helps pack down that plaque. We don't want it floating around in the system that can cause a stroke or a heart attack or anything like that. So instead of feeling... A, does plaque naturally build up in all of us over time? or is Over that, time, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. if, if you were not aware of it and I told you all I have coronary heart disease, you'd go, oh, Paul, I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm like, no, we probably men over 45 have it. It just depends on what quadrant you're in. I happen to be in the worst quadrant because of family biology. So 
um, I saw that and I said, well, what can I do to improve, you know, my chances from moving, you know, moderate risk of heart attack down to a very minor risk. So I set about on a kind of a health plan myself. So my wife and I have been working out um, since then every day um, and it's been great. So I'm addicted to jumping rope now and I've lost uh, mm. about uh, seven pounds. Nice. Yeah. And uh, it was kind of cool because uh, <laughs> if you ever have to get on a stress test, I can tell you um, I don't think any of you would have a problem with the stress test, but I, I was worried that I wouldn't be able to get through it. And I told myself, I'm going to push myself until I can't do it anymore. So a stress test, in case you don't know, it would be like going to the gym and starting on the um, the walker, what the... Treadmill? Oh, the treadmill, sorry. Yeah, the treadmill at 10% up. So there's an incline of 10%. And then every three minutes, it goes up 2%. And the speed increases. So maybe you already set your treadmill like that when you go to the gym. But for me, I I was always flat or running or anything like that. But um, towards the end, I would put put on the incline. But you start out immediately like that. You start walking. So the tech and the person running the test thought that I would have thought that I probably had ischemia, which means you know pretty poor blood flow in my system. Which I I was fine. I had been jumping rope now consistently for about a almost two months. So I got on this thing and I said, well, let's go, let's go to the end. Well, nobody ever makes it to the end, sir. Um, but the idea was to at least to get to stage five. So I started at stage one, got all the way up to stage five. And I mean, I was running flat out. And then they they said, you want to go to stage six? I said, let me stop here. So it was kind of cool. They uh, Then they scope your heart and give you an echocardiogram. You get a full picture of your heart. So the results are, I'm in excellent health, which is uh, a great sign. Yeah. Uh, certainly for me and, uh, and my wife. Um, but again, it's not something that's immediately going to go away. It's a part of me now. Um, and to, actually to mitigate that, is it just a diet thing? Yeah, diet's key. And if you've seen the commercials for statins, you get on that. Um, take a little baby aspirin uh, once a day. And that at least, and I literally cut, you know, I don't know if you guys have gotten your blood drawn, done a lipid panel, but uh, at some point you will be very cognizant of good HDL and bad LDL. Mm -hmm. And... Um, Mine was cut in half. I cut it in half in less than a month. So it's actually below where it needs to be for anybody with coronary heart disease. So the exercise and the diet and a little bit of pharmacology are helping. Sometimes God gives us ailments so to push us towards a lifestyle that better suits our happiness, I believe. And so perhaps this thing is a part of you so that you have the excuse to uh, push yourself to maintain a, a habitual exercise and, and healthy diet. Indeed. Indeed. Yes, my brother. Yes. And, not, and not only do we have a, a healthy Chris and a healthy Paul, but clearly a healthy Johnny Depp. I mean, Aaron Mann um, <sighs> with his Stam at seven. Uh, how's it tasting, buddy? Mmm. Shroomy. Shroomy. Earthy. Earthy. <laughs> Aaron, yeah, if you guys don't know, this stuff is amazing. It really is. I, I've taken it before, and I'm a huge component in mushrooms in general. I've taken many of Stamets' products. Uh, mushrooms are one of God's gifts to us all. How have you been, Aaron? It seems like Chris and Paul are looking and feeling healthy. You are, for those who don't know, Aaron is a, a model, an actor, um, a photographer, and a student. What you been up to, man? Um, I have just been diving into school. 
uh, yep. mostly photography. As you know, I've been sending you <laughs> photos of mangoes and yes. Mercedes. <laughs> um, you know, so it's it's been it's been fun. Uh, I do miss being in a classroom. I think all students can feel me on that. Um, Zoom classes are not ideal, especially with a uh, very hands-on education. You know, something like photography where it's like you want the teacher to be over your shoulder while you're editing and say, no, 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 no. You, like that highlight looks terrible. You need to, you know, because otherwise the process is just very uh, spacious. And, you know, by the time you get feedback, you've already got the bad grade, you know, so right. it's. It's a struggle, but um, I'm pushing through it, and I'm looking forward to when my schooling moves into cinematography because I am just so inspired by this month's movies. Ooh. Cinematography wise, it was just like oh, like it was like a month of close-ups and rooftop shots. There you go. You know what I mean? Ah. There you go. Yeah. And yeah. I was just appreciating it. I would be like, I mean, we'll get into the movies, but there was just moments where I was like. How cool is it that somebody, either the director or the cinematographer, was like, hey, I'm going to go climb up on that roof. I think that's the shot. I mean, there's a million ways you could shoot this one shot, but he chose the rooftop. And you just get this landscape. Oh, man. So I'm just, I'm, I'm inspired. You know, I, I highly recommend anyone getting into cinematography or directing. Like, start with photography as well, because you got to learn how to create your frames. It's not Position, baby. Yeah, man, you're you're learning you're learning all the mechanics from all the different perspectives from behind the camera. So, by the time you're done with your schooling and with your acting background and modeling background as well, so now you're gonna have a full encompassed view of just creating art, whether that's stills or moving art. Um, you're gonna have your pick of of what calls you to uh, to uh, see it to the end. And yeah. so that's very exciting. It is unfortunate that uh, your your experience as a student is being hindered by this situation we're all in. But uh, hopefully, you'll get to finish in a classroom um, and not finish behind a computer screen in your room. I hope so, especially when I'm making films and it requires me to be with actors. And I mean, creating a film, you got to be with people essentially. Yeah. Well, you'll be able to do that. I, yeah, I believe. Although I will say, um, the experience I'm I'm currently working on a television show right now. That's why I am in Provo, Utah. And um, man, the COVID thing is dramatic, and it is uh, an everyday trial that our show and the hundreds and hundreds of people who are a part of this thing are battling. I mean, we get I'm getting tested three days a week. Two finger pricks, Mondays and Wednesdays, and on Fridays I'm doing a spit test, which involves about ten minutes of spitting into a tube. Um, wow. And uh, we got our first. Uh, well, maybe it's not kosher to reveal this type of information, so I will bite my tongue. But let's just say that the COVID uh, is presenting some dramatic things behind the scenes that we are all trying to push through. It's like gonna be a miracle and i do have faith that it will happen but it will be a miracle if we get through this whole thing without having to uh delay shooting because of covid i mean we're it, we're we're not in the best location when it comes to covid right now too this town in particular is rampant with positive uh 
with uh, positives. So uh, COVID's attacking where I'm at right now, and uh, we're hoping to get through it. So we got three weeks left of, of Utah, and hopefully we get through it with no with no uh, real drama. But um, we're being tested for sure. So it's crazy times, um, but the show goes on. So, Chris, do we have our lineup uh, visible? We do now. Cool. So the three films in discussion today are, help me out, Chris, what's the first film? The first film is Wildlife by Paul Dano. That is 2018, correct? Correct. All right, Paul, what's the second film we're going to be talking about today? I believe uh, Once once Upon a Time in the West. It's Dead Man. (laughs) Sorry to put you on the spot, Paul. (laughs) Uh, It's Dead Man, uh, starring Johnny Depp, directed by Jim Jarmusch. Do we have a year for that? 1995. 95. Both of those American films. And last but not least, we have Once Upon a Time in the West, the Spaghetti Western from Sergio Leone, the inventor of the Spaghetti Western. Uh, Do we have a year for that? 1968. 1968. That'll be in our main event slot today. The order has nothing to do with our rankings because we do not know what each other's rankings are. Correct. But we are about to find out what we all think of Paul Dano's directorial debut with Mm -hmm. Wildlife starring Jake Gyllenhaal and Casey Mulligan. (laughs) Um, First, we have to watch a clip. Yeah. Uh Uh-oh. Buckle up. (laughs) (laughs) Buckle up, buttercups. Wildlife. 2018, Paul Dano, the United States. Well, talk to your father. Tell him not to act like a fool. I am not being foolish. I put my name on a list. I waited for my chance, and now they finally have a place for me. You don't know anything about fires. You'll get burned up. Well, I've been reading about them. I know enough. <laughs> You've been reading about them? You've been studying up? Don't turn my words on me, Gene. Dad, what's going on? Your father is leaving us to go and fight those wildfires. What? Dad, why? Ezra, Jerry, you won't take a job at a grocery store, but you'll go out with a bunch of deadbeats and risk getting killed. Yeah, I have to go there and leave it. What is a paying? Wild life. Yes. Hit us with that synopsis, boy. Wildlife, the 2008 movie by Paul Dano, is a story of a family kind of falling apart at the seams, it would seem. Um, The father, played by Jake Gyllenhaal, is kind of a... I don't want to say a deadbeat, but he's kind of just not necessarily trying the hardest to be a man for his family. Uh, In the 1960s, in uh, what is later revealed to be Montana... Uh, He is recently fired from his job as a caddy at a golf course and uh, is unwilling to do anything that he deems isn't worth his time uh, when he kind of has to relent and then get a job after his wife starts to get a job. Things are pushed into a further kind of conflict as he goes and fights a wildfire in the northeast section of Montana that is ravaging the state. And he says he'll be home at the first snowfall. His wife obviously disapprove of this and leads this into the main conflict of her movie as she is unfaithful to her husband. And her son, the 14-year-old John, uh, sees all of this through his tiny little eyes and is <laughs> thrust into the wildlife that is the American lifestyle. This guy Thrust. had such small eyes. Terribly small, small eyes, yeah. Small, small <laughs> <stuff>. <laughs> okay. Uh, 
now we're going to go to our sponsor, SwiftPolling.com. Yes. Okay, yeah. we'll do that. So while we wait for me, Chris, why don't you start us off? Sure. Oh, Chris. I put our names on these. Yes. For Wildlife. Let me check my scores up here. For Wildlife, I gave the movie... Hey, 6.9. Hey, 6.9. 6.9 from 6.9. Chrissy. Okay, cool. So, okay. A D? 6.9. A D plus? A D plus. A D plus from Chris. Paul, you're up whenever you're ready. All right, I'm up. Did I go through? I think it was. Oh, through. there we go. 8.0 from 8.0. Paul. A solid B minus like, from Paul. Right, yeah. Giving them letter like, grades yeah. now? Yeah, exactly. That's, thank you, Aaron. Because that's Aaron. You can tell he's missing like, yeah. oh, God. Here we, if, if wow, he scores this under seven, Aaron. there's going to be a conspiracy. Five. There's going to be a conspiracy. A flat B from Aaron. We are doing letters now, guys. I like, I like, kind of <laughs> like the letters. Yeah, letters help a little bit. Okay, and I did get in, and mine is a... Suspense. That work? Seven point four. Seven point four. Yeah. All right, people. Oh. Okay. So we're we're a bit all over the map here, ranging all the way from a flat B to a D plus. Um, Chris, what is the final Dead Cinema Society score for well, this Paul Dano directorial debut about a man, a wife, and a Paul Dano lookalike kid? Do you think that was honestly what he was going for with that kid? Because I thought so as well. Yes. Right? Yeah. I he looked, I mean, like. you don't know what Paul Dano looks like? No, now I do. Wow. <laughs> Uh, that is a solid you're not, you're not 7.7. Yeah, they look a, a seven. lot. Of... Yeah, right. What? A 7.7. Seven. So uh, a C plus for, um, for wildlife. Yes. Okay. Um, so, Aaron, you're not familiar with Paul Dano's work as far as an acting, acting goes? Uh, no, I'm not very familiar. I'm seeing here he's shooting the Batman right now. He's yes, the Riddler. He is playing the Riddler. Riddler. Wow. Um, wow, I'm surprised. I think well, he's... Huh? Well, this is the only film he's directed thus far. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but uh, I don't know. What, Chris and Paul, what do, you, what do you guys think of Paul Dano as an actor? I, I love him as an actor. I have... As uh, do I. Yeah. He, I... Um, he very, he's very uh, he's wonderful uh, in an interview. He's very thoughtful, um, and he there's always uh, I don't know, I, it's, this is going to sound like acting coachy, but he's always always delivers a very layered performance. I w- would be very curious about his personal story growing up, uh, what his influences were. Paul, bring that mic a little closer to you. Oh sure, yeah. You know what? Because I uh, there we go. Is that a little bit better? Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. Right. Thank you. All right, no problem. Yeah, I would be very curious about his personal history. A very, very curious. Uh-huh, yeah, uh, and, yeah, and yeah, yeah, because he. I think. Was, I think he's. It's one of those things where he, um, like, even. Um, he is able to go inside of himself in a very deep place. Uh, there will be blood. That uh, was very evident in a couple of scenes. Um, yeah, it just. I I really enjoy him. I could listen him to him and watch him a lot. As could I. You never saw There Will Be Blood, Aaron? 
I did. Yeah, I'm looking at uh, his screen grabs. I just wasn't familiar with his name. Um, he was also in the Beach Boys film. Yeah, um, oh, I didn't see that, that one. Oh, that was the Beach Boys film. Yeah. Well, the story so of uh, of yeah. uh, what's his name, the lead singer there. Yeah, it's probably uh, how he grabbed Bill Camp and threw him into this. Oh. Yeah. Twelve years a slave too. He was good in that. That was my only exposure to him. My uh, prior to this, uh, and obviously the Batman, because I've never seen There Will Be Blood. Um, I've heard that he was good as a young man in Little Miss Sunshine. Still mm-hmm. haven't seen that movie. Yeah. Oh, that was probably his debut then. Yeah, Little Miss Sunshine, uh, two thousand six. Uh, yeah. What's Paul? What's the Beach Boys guy's name? Uh, Bill Camp, he played the dad, the overbearing dad, to kind of shepherd the Wilson brothers through the process. Bill um, Camp. Bill Camp was, if we're talking about, yeah, so uh, Bill Camp is that wonderful character actor. God, he's so good. Uh, no, but who's who's the actual member of the Beach Boys? That the Brian movie Wilson. Was? Brian Wilson. Paul Dano plays a young Brian Wilson. Yeah. Oh, and, okay. And um, John Cusack plays the older Brian Wilson. Yeah. And they go back and forth. Anyways, that's neither here nor there. But Paul Dano is one of those. Oh, he was also in Prisoners um, mm-hmm. with, oh, with right Jake, with uh, Jake Gyllenhaal and Hugh Jackie. That's how I got them Jake. all together. I was trying to figure out the Carrie Mulligan uh, connection too, because he. I just don't know if they've done something together. So historically, Paul Dano is this sort of like very vulnerable. Like in Prisoners, he plays a potential uh, rapist, serial killer type character. I can't exactly remember what he's guilty of. Kidnapping, I believe, and torturing. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's really good at these sort of like, you know, like a potentially tra- traumatized child, like uh, child, um, you know, maybe parents who messed him up. You know, he's got this kind of like vulnerable pain about him. Um and I think you're right to inquire about what his life was like because that's the exact question I had coming out of this film because for me, that kid was casted specifically to represent Paul Dano, which makes me think that Paul Dano's life history might have some correlation to the story that we um, that we explored in Wildlife, which is this sort of... Uh, always wanting going back to the master with with freddie quill's character on our last show photographer being a photographer for families and constantly being uh subjected to what an ideal american family looks like and sort of yearning from for that from behind the camera and not actually having access to it and we'll get we'll get into that final shot which is really what sums up the whole film um but uh Overall, how do we feel about Paul Dano's directorial debut? I mean, I guess the numbers speak for themselves. Aaron, not even knowing who Paul Dano is, uh, <laughs> gives him a lot of respect. And Chris, uh, not so much feeling it. Let's start with you, Chris. What of this film didn't really, what of this film was a sin? And what a true definition of the word sin is, is missing the mark. Uh, I just think it was it it was a very good attempt at a film. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is. I mean, I knew it was his first film, so like I didn't go too harsh on it. But like, it's definitely one of those films that, and and I think this is the case for this film too. It was like it did really well at a film festival, but in my own personal opinion, it didn't, it didn't stack up. Like, sh- some shots like 
lasted for too long. Uh, some pans weren't as quick as I would want them to be. The acting left a little bit to be desired. And like, even the story itself didn't like hold up on certain things. It's like, well, why is she doing this? Or why is that character doing that? Like I could have, I, I honestly would have liked to focus on the kid a lot more rather than his parents because if we're truly trying to go from that like kid's perspective i would have liked to see his perspective chris the whole movie was about this kid's perspective i i I disagree wholeheartedly with that because like if if we really want to see his perspective we should hate the mother and like i just didn't like her but i knew where she was coming from don't hate her Oh, I don't, I don't hate, hate her, her either. I don't hate no, her. I under- no, I understand what, why she did what she did because at the end of the day, the fault should go on the man of the house. I mean, I'm not going super conservative, old school family style on everyone here, but the fact of the matter is Jake Gyllenhaal being the father, especially at this time in America, it's his responsibility to keep the family together. And he clearly, the the arc that his character is going through is that he doesn't he's not equipped to be the man of the house he's he's running away from responsibility that's what that is going to fight fires he'd rather fight fires out in the wood in the wilderness where he doesn't have family familiar responsibilities than fight the fires in his own home and so what is she supposed to do i don't necessarily agree she did the right thing and uh, i definitely didn't have a good taste in my mouth watching carrie mulligan's performance i mean certainly she was uh infuriating in some sense of the word however do you can you blame her i mean he just left them he just left them and so she's and and it seems like this is a recurring theme i mean she hints at that throughout the film like he's con they're constantly moving and it's as a result of his inability to stick with a job because he doesn't know who he is he doesn't have a he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know how to care for his family. So what? when we come into this world, for us, it's the first time experiencing this. For her, it's probably the 10th. So we have to sympathize with her position, in my opinion, to want to explore other alternatives. And it, that's sort of the feminine spirit way of sort of saying like, hey, you get what's coming to you. Um, so that's where my empathy is with her. And I agree with everything you said, uh, Chris. I think that this is a great surface level film, a great attempt at being a director. And it's a, but it's the thing at the end of the day, it's, it's a very safe attempt. It's a yeah. safe story. It's a story that's been done a million times. There's nothing wholly original about it. They, it could have, you could take this on the surface level and then you could find something deeper to make us really engage. But ultimately, this is just too safe. It's just like, okay, I can't hate this film because you made it too safe to hate the film. Yeah. I can like it, though. I can mm-hmm. certainly like it. Aaron, you, you you had hate for the mother. You're disagreeing with Chris. I didn't have hate for the mother. I don't have hate for anyone. Let's get Sure, that I know. But in the context of uh, what we're talking about. But yes, I disliked her choice. I feel, you know, you want to talk about the safe choice. She she collapsed on herself. I mean, you know, I don't agree with the husband's choice, but she gave in to this like feeling of helplessness. Like she, you know, she was desperate for that attention to get somebody to care for her. Like you just saw this woman going through these dreams that were burning alive where it was like, this is not the woman I wanted to be. I wanted to be the rich housewife with the man that owns the dealership. And has everything I ever wanted. And that whole dream, that whole 
aspiration is burning in front of her. And it's like, I'm with this deadbeat husband. He just left. Like, I am a swim instructor. I don't know what to do with my life. She just kind of self-destructs and, and chooses this like low life decision where it was like, I mean, I am being judgmental on her, but she, she takes this easy route out and is like, well, let me just find somebody that can take care of us. I disagree. I disagree because, with that as well. Because she could have grabbed the reins. But she wasn't said, interested in the money. There was no evidence towards that. She was interested in a man who had the cojones to to take life by the reins and make something of it. Someone who cared, someone who is passionate about, you know, life and about making and, and about responsibility and about taking care of his own. Like this is this is a lashing out of what she does not have. I don't think there's any evidence and Chris take over that she was after, you know, money. I mean, she would have left him years ago if that was the case. Am I right? I do agree with Aaron that it's not necessarily the it's it's not necessarily about the money. Or maybe you said that. I don't know. I said it's not about the money. Okay, but I, I do think she's taking the easy way. And she does she does look for work and she does kind of do you know, the, the hitting the ground and the pavement and everything, because she goes to look for a job and there's, there isn't any available. But at the same time, I think it's, it, it is kind of easy for her to do that because what else is she going to do? At the time, I mean, what else, what other kind of job? I mean, she looks for a secretary job. She looks for a hostess job. She looks for a swim instructor. Unfortunately, at America in this time, like she can't go be a mechanic. She can't go, you know, door to door selling things like, it's unfortunate. So she has to do what she has to do. And that's trying to get a guy to pay for shit by sleeping with him. And that's what she does. Okay. So perhaps what you're bringing up here is that maybe we're touching surface level. Maybe we're pointing fingers and we're blaming characters and we're touching the surface here, but maybe there's a deeper layer to this as to what is this? 1950s America, 1960, 1960, 1960. But in Montana, it feels like the 50s. Cause it's Montana, yeah. you know, we're not in It's New a little York. slow to get up there. A little, yeah. yeah. Feels like <laughs> <it>. <laughs> uh, but so, so maybe let's take a step back and maybe have empathy for the situation that they're in. And Paul, is there anything to explore here with saying that this film is exploring the sort of false American dream? Um, meaning that, you know, the, the man, you know, goes out and works for a dollar an hour. And is it the system that we're fighting against here? Is it the system's fault that this family falls apart? If it wasn't for the system, would this family have been able to stay together? Uh, yeah. And then the question, why are they in a rural part of the country? So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm challenged at the beginning uh, because I love the there these frontiers people have decided to wind up in montana and how are they going to uh, squeeze out a living and it's pretty evident up front unless he's the on staff golf pro at the country club and if he's just cleaning shoes and washing golf balls uh his lot in life is um unfortunately his you know he's resigned to just being not fully a fully realized man so that uh that abounds everywhere that that's that that crosses uh that spans decades and centuries you're just uh, a man who has decided i'm not gonna i'm just gonna do what i want to do and i'm not gonna get to 
the absolute maximum of who I am, you know, and I think she just then takes it upon herself. So then our, our POV moves to her and she decides I'm going to take it upon myself. Then maybe he decides, you know what, I'm going to be a man and I'm going to go fight a fire. I'm going to show everybody that I can do this. I'm like, okay, um, great. You're going to put your life at risk. Is she right in challenging that? Yes. Uh, because she is probably looking at the family a certain way and that there should be a man and he should be a leader and, and gainfully employed, but maybe not gainfully employed fighting fires. Um, but he even, I mean, she even yeah. investigated that and it's a dollar a day. It was less yeah. than less than <laughs> jobs that were in the area that he exactly. could Exactly. So Clearly like, that was nothing to do with taking care of the family is my right. point. So he's yeah. checked out and I'm like, okay, I get it. So then it became a novel for me. So then this was the novel and I'm watching this and I'm going, God, this would be, this is such a, this is this is such a novel at this point. And then as we got deeper into Montana, I was like, who's that guy who wrote about Montana years ago? What was that collection of short stories? And I looked it up. It was Rock Springs. I'm like, God, he really captured Montana. That This movie, Paul Dano must have really read that guy's work. And of course, it turns out it's, this movie's based on a Richard Ford novel. I'm like, okay, you're a total idiot, Paul. Um, who's, so, uh, can you explain to the audience who Richard Ford is a little bit? Just Richard briefly? Ford is, um, he's an American author. He is extraordinary um and i can as we started this discussion about paul dano i can understand paul dano uh being uh probably uh captivated with uh with richard ford's work and perhaps being deferential because chris started this and i agreed with everything he said and the question was if we gave it a letter grade i gave Paul and his team, because I love Diego Garcia, the cinematographer. I loved his work in Too Old to Die Young or whatever that movie was with the uh, Ring with Hayden or whatever the guy, I can't forget, Winden, I can't even think of the, the Dutch director, but he, he, um, Winden, he oh, uh, the director of Drive? Yeah. Whatever, Refn? Refn, yes, exactly. Nicholas Winden Refn? Nick, yeah. Nicholas Winden Refn, yeah. Um, so I just felt they were being very deferential. I'm sorry, I'm sorry to keep interrupting. What was the connection to him? The uh, the connection was the cinematographer Diego Garcia shot were, lit that movie, and he also lit this movie. So ah, he's pulling ah, together. So Dano has, has definitely done. That's why I use the word antiseptic. This movie is very antiseptic to me. It's like it's perfect. What he did is he obviously prisoners. He collaborated with Jake Gyllenhaal had a connection there. They probably have a mutual admiration for each other's work. We've seen Jake and Donnie Darko. I mean, mm, that's a lively performance. Um, uh, he's cast uh, an Australian actor who perhaps rem- resembles himself. Uh, I could see a young Paul Dano who is uh, hoofing it on Broadway in between tech rehearsals, pulling out a Richard Ford novel and reading it and getting captured. I mean, I can see all of this happening, and finally he gets an opportunity to direct. And even he would say, if he were the fifth panel on our show, he'd say, yes, guys, it was a first attempt. But you understand, I've, I've hit all the notes, Right. Uh, I don't have room for a grace note in this. I've hit all the notes. I didn't need to do anything extra or anything discordant with the movie. I just needed to present this. I've, I have served the author, Richard Ford, one of my personal favorites. I have served the actors whom I adore. I've served a script. It, it's clear that his wife, right, Zoe's his wife, uh, they can write a script. So all the attendant parts are there. They just didn't come together to like uh, masterpiece level on this project. But if I'm a studio executive, I'm going, wow, because to Aaron's point, you know, the rooftop shots, the shot to really allow you to see big sky country in Montana. I mean, technically, it's just so perfect. And perhaps he would look at this and go, yeah, it was just probably too technically heavy on 
dressing Carrie Mulligan with that wig. I was too technically heavy on shaping this scene so that everybody could understand we're in Montana. I mean, then it's like, what, what is the importance of Montana? And then it's a question of, okay, is, is the importance of Montana because this family is blazing a trail out to the Pacific Northwest and they're looking for an opportunity? Could they do this anywhere else? I think was to your point, Yoshi, I mean, um, yeah, it's the 60s. Women don't have any rights. They're still, you know, they got to get permission from their husbands. They get like, oh, still open a bank account or checking account. I mean, it's just, it's ghastly times for women. Um, so yeah, she's plying the oldest trade in the book, I guess. So, um, but for I think, me, it was, you know, like a, like a B. Yeah. You know. You know. Yeah, I think for me, the, the acting is what saved the film. I mean, mm -hmm. Jake Gyllenhaal, Carrie Mulligan, and this young actor who, I forgive me, I didn't take the time to look up his name. Maybe someone else did. But uh, Ed uh, Oxenbold. Ed Oxenbold. What a name, man. That is the most Australian name ever. That is. Um, yeah, It'll great be. performances all around. Yeah. Even um, the gentleman who she had the affair with, who I've seen many times, but also don't don't know his name but yeah great actors and that often happens when you take a good actor and, and he takes the director's seat he typically is mm -hmm. easily gets good actors surrounded by him and gets good performances out of them aaron walk yes. us through walk us through what you liked about this film including uh, yeah. was that rooftop shot that you referenced at the top of the show from this film Woo! yeah okay. <laughs> so there was this rooftop shot um that i referenced earlier in the show but there's this shot where they are him and this girl um, they're meeting after school and they, you know, they just want to have fun anyway. So they're coming out this trail and then heading out into wherever they're going. Um, but I just thought, you know, those type of things mm -hmm. to get into the cinematographer's mind, like I just picture this conversation. It's like, okay, we got a million ways we can shoot this. How do you want this shot? And he looks up at the building. He's like, I'm going to get it from there. And it, you know what I mean? It's just this gorgeous pan of Montana and the mountains and the road that just cuts perfectly. There's so many shots in this movie that are the frame, you know? I mean, they're just beautiful pieces of art. And I love how still this film is when you're taking it from shot to shot, even when we're in the house, a lot of it's just on sticks. I mean, a lot of it's just framed up. It's just the living room. Let's let the actors breathe, like let them go. I mean, they just had these one takes where they're screaming mm -hmm. at each other. We don't need a close up because we get it. I mean, the whole fucking house is on fire. You know what I mean? Uh -huh. And the reason I love this film and why it went way above an eight for me is this is, you know, it, it talks about wildfires and the everything catching. I mean, this whole family goes up in smoke. And it's just a, it's like in a representation of wildfires where like just a little spark, if it doesn't get uh, exhausted, if it doesn't have something to put it out, the whole thing goes up in an in instant. I mean, the dad leaves, the mom finds another man to replace and finds support. And the kid is like, just doesn't know how to take this whole thing in. Um, I mean, it's just a, it's a disaster. I love the scene where she drives her son out to the wildfire and she has him get out of the car and she's like, look at it, you know? Like, do you want any part of that? And it's like, he's literally watching it. It's like, no, but he, he's getting thrust into it. I think as Chris said, he's getting thrust into the American dynamic where it's like, this is 
what you have to look forward to if you don't get that stable job, if you don't make a purpose of your life. You know, I, I'm not here to defend Jake's um, actions and leaving the family because I don't think that was right. But I also love empathizing with his character where he is this good man. He's this good person where he's personable and he's, he, you know, he's, yeah. Uh, I don't know. He's just this great guy. He's like, I'm a good person. You know, I take, I take care. Like I'm, I'm very attentive. I do my job. Well, I'm on time. He brings his son to work to help out. I mean, he's a great employee and then he gets fired out of nowhere and suddenly his world, his world shatters. And he's like, what's my purpose? Why am I here? And then the yeah. guy, the, the boss calls his wife back and says, or his son or whatever, and says, Hey, you got your job back. Come on in. We, we want you. You want me now? Like, at, like, why yeah. would I go back to that? And now he Where's is the thrown there? into, or his whole world is shattered. He doesn't have purpose now. Now he's looking at his whole life and he's like, wow, my son's got a job. My wife's got a job. I have nothing. What am I going to go back to being this golf lackey or whatever that job was? <laughs> Yeah, you touched on a, a couple. You touched on a couple of things there that I, I'd like to explore. Uh, one being that's kind of why I brought up earlier the idea of maybe it being the quote unquote system to blame here, because you know, like you said, we, we should we should balance this conversation out and sympathize with this character as well. It would be unfair to just blame him, you know, for for everything that happens when, like you said, he's if it wasn't for circum the circumstance. He would continue, you know, showing up for work every day and, you know, enjoying his one or two beers after work to deal with, you know, the fact that he's not really doing what he wants to do in life, but he's still going to persevere and be a good father to his son. You know, maybe he thinks football is going to teach his son what his son needs to know. Maybe that's a lack of intelligence in his character, but ultimately he does care and he, he wants to, you know, raise his family properly the other thing you touched on is what is the title of this film wildlife what it, let's explore why it's called that is it because of how malleable the family life is how 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 much raising a family can sometimes be on stilts and how that could easily crumble at any second and it's it's in, in, insanely difficult to properly raise a family and hold them together. Yeah, if you don't tend the forest, I mean, we just had this in California, all these wildfires, if you don't tend the grounds, if you don't take care of what this is, like you're just gonna have dead wood all over the place. And if a spark goes up, it's over, you know? The whole thing just comes down, the whole world catches on fire, but you didn't have the foundation for a good relationship. You didn't do the little things, you know, you stopped having intimacy with your wife. You stopped, you know, you just kept, you got into your cycles. You drank your beers, things were comfortable. We live in this okay house. I don't really want another job. And then when all of it crumbles, it just catches fire. And there's, there's certainly always going to be that temptation. You know, Paul, you chose not to have children and there's many others who don't, mm -hmm. but there's i'm going to speak about someone i know personally without giving away who it is because uh, it's a bit too personal but i know someone who was in a situation where they had a, they have a family they had two kids a wife they had the same job their whole life uh serving their country and suddenly at the age of 
maybe it was like late 40s, they, their job, their lifetime career was taken away from them by the government, and they were forced either to relocate, which was not an option because of their family, or to go to school in Texas in their late 40s and relearn and learn a completely new field um, when this person was never really an intellectual person, never did well in school when they were a kid, and, and yet in their late 40s, in order to keep their family together and survive, they were forced to go to school for a year away from their family, learn a completely new field which was completely foreign to how their brain works. And when they were there, they admitted to me years later that they were tempted to get in their car and drive down to Mexico and just leave. That's how scary that was for that person because they didn't think they'd be able to get through that task and, and, and continue to fend for their family. Ultimately, they persist, persisted and everything worked out in the end, but I'm, I'm reminiscent of that through the Jake Gyllenhaal character and what he chooses to do. And, and, and maybe his character at one point was out there and was like, you know what? I'm going to die, quote unquote, in this fire and disappear because I just can't handle the stress of keeping this family together. I have no idea what to do. Nobody ever gave me a manual and I don't know what I'm doing because my parents didn't know how to do it to me. How am I supposed to know how to do it to them? Let's wrap up with Chris. Uh, uh, um, walk us through the end there and let's just dissect. I have to piss sure. so bad, guys. I know. <laughs> I was trying to wait to the end of the conversation, so I'm going yeah. to do that. Walk us through that beautiful ending to this movie, and let's just try to dissect what that's all about. I'll be right back. Well, I, I want to say first, as you're going to pee, that that story would be a much better movie that I would want to watch than than this thing. Yeah. Uh, the ending, uh, it's it's a time jump, I think, of about a couple months because it's snowing in one scene and it's not in the next. Uh, they are seemingly separated, divorced, whatever they are at the time. Uh, and John or Joe gets a message. The, the son gets a message from the mother who's living up in Portland, Oregon, uh, that she's coming down in a day. And so he goes and picks her up from the bus port. She comes to visit the house. Uh, it appears that Jake Gyllenhaal's character, uh, the father, has found a new job as an electrical salesman. Looks like seems to be doing all right. He's making making ends meet. The house looks a little better. It doesn't look as dilapidated as before. Uh, he's not taken on a new lover, uh, as far as we know. And then Carrie Mulligan enters, and his son character uh, now being promoted as to actually taking photos at the developer where he's working, uh, pitches them. It's like, hey, why don't we go take a photo? And then while they're there gets an own, a family portrait, probably the only one that he's going to get for many, many years after that. And we're left with the image on the poster, as you can see in the center of your screen. And what a, what a uh, fantastic shot and way to end the film. And it's mm -hmm. just sort of like in so many other films that we've seen, the child is the one who knows what's going on and, yep. is, and is the one who's sort of removed from what society has done to these adults who used to be children themselves. And you have this beautiful shot of like Jake Gyllenhaal and, and Carrie Mulligan just awkwardly sort of real sitting in the sort of muck that they've created through their fears and their inabilities. Uh, what's that? It, the, the poster's right in the center. <laughs> oh, we can't see it. it communicate but, no. this right? picture. Yeah. <laughs> Think What's about that? what communication could have done in this in this story. You know? 
like yeah. just a little bit of communication, even from Jake Gyllenhaal, like, hey, I'm looking for purpose. I don't know what it is, but I watched these fires being put out on TV and I want to help somebody. I want to do something bigger than myself because maybe his intentions weren't to just abandon his family. Maybe he just really wanted to like make some kind of difference because it wasn't doing the golfing shoes. No. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely and there's just right. Three of them too. There, there wasn't like we weren't talking about three kids. We have a boy who's at playing high school football or about to, or you know, in that in his teen years. So the, there, you know, the implication is: could they have more children? Did they want more children? There's a wonderful, you know, symbology with three points, and now we've got the the you know this this family through the eyes of a boy and his emotional response to each of them. It made it very interesting it seemed very autobiographical to that degree made me curious about paul dano's life i know he got started in the trade early somebody you know must have inspired him um you know it was just very precocious character a lot of similarities with paul dano so that just that uh interested me and i just felt like okay great so this is our this is our muse this is our you know this is gonna be our little beacon here is gonna signal to us what's going on at, at key times and um he was. He was the one who kept it all together. Yeah, there's that great uh, moment after Jake Gyllenhaal's character uh, sets the porch on fire of the man who Carrie Mulligan has the affair with. And um, afterwards, the kid goes you know, to try to find Jake Gyllenhaal at the jail. He's not there. He comes home. And it's like uh, the parents are like the kids – that are looking up at their parents, you know, like knowing they've disappointed their parents, but they're looking down on the kid, knowing they've disappointed their kid. And the kid is the adult, and he's like, "We're we gonna be okay." <laughs> yeah, I have work and in the like, like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, like exactly. I have homework. To, yeah, whatever he says. I have school tomorrow. I have to go to bed. Like, and and that's just that's really I think what the film explores. I think we just yeah. hit it on, on the head right there. Is that the roles are reversed. The adults are the kids, and the kid is the adult. And uh, you're right, Aaron. I think communication—you know—that's what's lacking from almost every family that ends up like this. So, yeah. I mean, there's no review of this film out there that will ever top the one we just did. I mean, that's just like ridiculous. Oh. Like, where are our views, guys? Like, come on. <laughs> Dive in deep. Yeah, I mean, Paul, Paul Dano, even even seeing the 6.9 from Chris would appreciate this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, what's up next, Chris? Dead Man. Dead, dead man, man on Dead Cinema Society. Uh, Lots dead of Cinema death. Society. Very yeah. excited to figure out. Yeah, here we go. Dead Man, 1995. Jim Jarmusch, the United States. You William Blake? Yes, I am. Do you know my poetry? Young coming in hot. Oh, 
Oh is, man, I can't wait to get into yummy. that. It's so yeah. yummy. So, Dead Man tells the story of one William Blake, who is an accountant who is born. <laughs> it's it's Aaron Man. <laughs> Aaron Man. <laughs> who, uh, after his parents mysteriously passed away, we don't know what from. Uh, but they pass away, leaving him penniless after the funeral. So he spends all of his money on a supposed job working for the Callahan, I believe it is, metal working company, out in the middle of nowhere in the West. This is a turn of the century, kind of uh, late cowboys, not early cowboys, uh, West. And uh, he rides the train and ends up at his destination, only to find out that he has no job. He is a month late and they've already hired somebody. So to drown his sorrows, he spends the last money he has to get some whiskey uh, and then finds a nice young woman who ends up being precocious and interested in him. Uh, Upon sleeping with her, he discovers that she's actually sort of with someone else. It's kind of uh, argued that he's an ex-boyfriend in the movie. Uh, Shoots her. Uh, He gets shot in the process. runs out the door after shooting the gentleman uh unbeknownst to him that this gentleman is the son of the basically owner of the town the owner of the machine working company the metalworking company that owns the town and then has a price on his head on the run he meets uh with a indian shaman known as no nobody nope nobody 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 played by the incomparable gary farmer who leads him yeah. on his life and transition to becoming a dead man. Woo! Shit! Okay, uh, let us know when our sponsor's ready for us. Oh, God. Sponsor. <laughs> I just dropped my phone, too. <laughs> it's our sponsor. Our sponsor. Swift Polling. Okay, Paul, start us off. Oof, hold on, hold on. They're waiting for it to reset. Waiting for it to reset. 8.7 from Paul. I love it. Wow. Okay. That's good. Here we go. Johnny Depp 2.0 gives it a... Aaron? Aaron. Oh, me. Hot <laughs> Depp, here we bro. go. 9.2. Oh, Holy 9.2. shit. <laughs> wow. Yoshi. Master PC. Master pieces. Okay. That's all you, buddy. I'm uh, spot on with Paul there. 8.7. Wow. Wow, well, I'm gonna round this out by giving it a. <laughs> a... It's bigger than a snowman. It's much He's... bigger than. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> I rounded out, giving it an eight point five. Okay, right. we all liked it. All right, <laughs> stupid white man. Stupid, stupid white, white man. man. No, it's stupid fucking white man. Stupid fucking stupid white man. fucking white man. <laughs> all right, so our average for dead man. Is an eight point eight. That's that's pretty stellar. Eight point eight for that's dead man. Stellar. Okay, an eight point eight for dead man on Dead Cinema Society. Um, wow, what a film, guys! Uh, totally captured me from the get go. I never was bored for a second. From the sounds to the shots, the close ups, the black, the monochrome worked excellently to neil young's soundtrack which supposedly he did in like two takes uh all the way to the first time i think i've ever liked johnny depp i'm, I'm one of these people oh. who for whatever reason doesn't get 
Johnny Depp as an actor. At least I don't understand the praise he gets besides being a very handsome man. This is prime Johnny Depp. I mean, yep. this is there's no mustard on top. No. Nothing like this is before he developed these superfluous characters. This is blank, real acting, and it was incredible. Like you said, um, Gary Farmer, unbelievable. Unbelievable. Uh, okay, so how do we unpack this movie? First of all, William Blake. William Blake. I've been diving in. Oh my God, I'm sorry. I I had okay. Keep going. Keep going. Paul's got a surprise too. No, I, I was funny because I oh God, I was gonna have this up. <laughs> you know I'm William so, Blake? I, I can't believe I don't William have Blake? this up. I'm so bad. Is it oh, what? Geez. Is it a poster no. of William Blake? Yeah, of Not course. To... And I was like, I was going to put it up, and I thought wow. it would be my backdrop. Oh, I see. Yes. But it, because it was, it was great when. Uh... So obviously, <laughs> uh, the reason why Johnny Depp's character is named William Blake is because Jim Jarmusch was heavily influenced by oh. the poetry of William Blake oh. for this film, which leads me to believe that this film is about a stupid white man in purgatory. Can I get a hallelujah? Hallelujah! Hallelujah! I agree with you. Yes. Well, yeah. You do. Yeah. 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 No, it's definitely yeah. Definitely. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so uh, so Johnny Depp is in purgatory and he's working his way towards either rema- either towards going towards hell mm-hmm. or towards heaven. Is that what this film's about? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Chris, walk me through that. What where where did you pick that up? Oh, in everything. I think it was yeah. it, the imagery was so because I mean, to be called nobody as a Native American is such Oh my God! What a name! Uh, what's his actual name? It was he who shouts, but says nothing. I think it was his actual name. Oh, he oh uh, he who speaks loudly says nothing, or something like that. Okay. Well, was that his name, or was that just like a proverb he kind of said at one point? So no, that that was his name. He prefers to go by nobody. But did but did he? I thought. Wait, the actual translation of his name was like something about he who speaks loudly says nothing. Yes. Right. So I'm nobody. Yeah. Or something like that. I remember when, when that when that part happened, I was like, I'm gonna stop talking. Yeah. <laughs> I, was like, I talk too much. <laughs> yeah. So I, I so because he should have died. I mean, from that mm-hmm. caliber yeah. of pistol getting shot through someone, it still goes into you and it hits mm-hmm. you like in the chest, he should have been dead. And so like that entire thing, I was like, he's dead. There we go. William Blake. Hell yeah. Wow, what a stud. Oh, he's such a stud. Um, and then smart. the only thing that he is, it, the only reason he's found is because, oh, your name is William Blake. And he starts searching through, do you have tobacco? Do you mm-hmm. have like the, the consummate? Everyone's asking for tobacco, but no one seems to have it. And it definitely follows this kind of, you know, Dante's Inferno. Mm-hmm. He is. He is his Virgil. I mean, yes, exactly. and he literally becomes the actualized version of William Blake in his brain. And even mm-hmm. when huh. he at the end, he's like, I who am I? I'm, I don't I don't smoke. And it's like, no, it's for you. Like you're William Blake. And like, how can you not know any of your poetry? And even the the body, the bodyguards, the bounty hunters who go after him representative of demons, like each of them has a sin that they are atoning okay. for. Yeah, no, we're, there's so much yeah. to, to yeah. unpack there. But what you said so much I need I wanted to ask you about. So Yeah. Uh, okay, so the tobacco. <laughs> Let's start with the tobacco. Tobacco, yeah. What is what is the symbology of the tobacco? 
I mean, obviously in Native American culture, the tobacco is significant with spiritual journeys, with being yep. grounded. Uh, I sort of have an ongoing theory that the tobacco is also tied to his glasses, meaning he's constantly asked if every character asks him if he has tobacco. Yeah. So clearly that's some sort of like initiation thing. Like until he wakes up, he won't understand what that question means. And then it can kind of be tied to the glasses thing where, where he asks nobody, have you seen my glasses? And nobody, nobody's wearing his glasses. And he's like, perhaps you'll see clear without them. And so for me, this is a journey of, of William Blake needing to kill the white man inside him who needs glasses to see and to start smoking the tobacco as a symbology of being grounded to nature and to, and to what, what is true sight, true vision, not the vision of, uh, of an accountant in the machine world, but a, the vision of someone who's connected to, to the earth and to the, the processes of, of life. Now that yeah. might be a bit of a stretch looking at all your faces, but well, <laughs> no, 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 I think no. tobacco yeah. represents the yeah. soul. I mean, if you look at when he finally received tobacco, it is when he is actualized as the best version of himself. I mean, when he is literally like the gunslinger, like he's so confident, he's a different, he's not the accountant, accountant in hell any longer. He is now killing, he is using blood as his poetry like he is the highest version of himself you know and he gets have you heard have you heard my poetry (laughs) so so going off of what chris said is there a chance i mean i almost want to save this until he gets back because it was kind of his idea that it just so so i'll go back to the let's go back to the beginning i think he's in purgatory from the very jump and the train is sort of like the river of sticks kind of thing Mm. you know he's, he's being welcomed into purgatory ish and then yeah. the devil is mr uh mr machine what's the his guy name? where he's like get out and he's yeah when a gun yeah yeah uh, played by him. the incomparable um somebody the, inco- <laughs> the opposite of nobody somebody. Yeah, the incomparable <laughs> somebody uh what's robert his mitchell. name robert mitchell yes robert mitchell, robert yes. mitchell. Yeah, what's his name you know what's okay no josh is i i actually have I don't think we're in purgatory. I think we're literally in hell, the deepest part of hell, like meeting the devil Nessus? and coming out of hell and the devil chasing you the entire story to bring you back to hell. He said, I want you alive or dead. Well, if he wants to bring him back to hell, then that implies that he's not in hell, right? That means- Well, he, he entered hell, like that being the accountant, working for the devil, like that is the lowest version of hell. Uh, and so he escapes that and leaves the town. But he never actually takes the position. No, he doesn't. He was and assigned to take the position of running the numbers of the devil, but he never actually does. For whatever circumstantial reason, he's late or something along But that whole lines. town represents the deepest part of hell. I mean, people are getting blowjobs in the street. And it, I mean, it's just such a yes. super aggressive area. Ones. I mean, it, it is hell, you know, yeah. there's no life there. There's, there's no goodness. There's no wholesome. And this little bit of life, this girl that, you know, seems like a bit of purity sends him into this wild story and he, he escapes from it. And I, I feel like the entire story, he's the, the devil is trying to bring him back 
and all these characters, like you guys said, are demons and devils yep. and, you know, bits of that. And, and perhaps, well, so perhaps, perhaps purgatory isn't really a place like heaven and hell, but purgatory is sort of a, a, a state that your soul is in. So you can be in hell like Dante being led by Virgil through the circles of hell, yeah. but your soul might not belong to the devil yet, which is what Correct. we have here. Yeah. Yeah. I like yeah. that. But maybe so, if you die in this story, then what, you know, what happens then? It's kind of like lost when, when you're in that. <laughs> everything's lost, like lost at the end of the day. I know everything's like lost, but well, it is, it's like a purgatory story. But he's like, everyone references that we are in hell, but you can still die in hell. Like, what is that? You know, it's not necessarily the end of the road. Okay. So Chris, you yes. brought up an interesting idea. Uh, Okay, I hope I don't lose it now. Uh, the idea, oh man, here we go. The idea. Uh, you said you brought up the tobacco. You brought up. Yes. Um, oh, William Blake. So eventually, all of a sudden, he says, "Have you heard my poetry?" Up until that point, he doesn't even know the William Blake reference. Is there a possibility that pre-death this was William Blake, like the actual poet, and then like he's on this journey to like fake remember who he truly is and then like actualize his identity and that's what that scene is about where he's like owning who he is and he kills those two demons no because william blake died many years before this movie is set uh well yeah but you have to you we, we would have to assume that this movie isn't set in any real time if it's yeah. hell and purgatory and these well, kinds of things I, so i view i view that you scene could, as, sorry to interrupt but you could say that the wild west was the closest we've ever been to hell as a country because that's like complete mm -hmm. chaos well yeah but also too you're getting what i enjoyed about this is that this was not the typical western this was you know if we want the postmodern western it was this movie i remember got me into cormac mccarthy because i was expecting a western so blood meridian when it's postmodern mm -hmm. for me it's like, oh, it, it, it affords us the opportunity to look at this much differently and get into the symbology that we're getting into, which is what I love about it. So I think it, the, I think the, the thing for hell works almost immeasurably better than the purgatory thing now that I think about it. Because as yeah. you go, even the beginning, the train, every time he wakes up, every time he essentially passes through a plane of existence, the people around him change. It goes from these, you know, debutante ladies and their gentlemen callers to, you know, railway workers and soldiers. And then it's just like people in furs, people drinking, like the actual characters change. Oh, yeah. The actual passengers in the in yeah. the, every the Buffalo. every time that he wakes up, they're different people. Mm -hmm. Oh, and then I they shoot the Buffalo. Yeah. And so I thought that's okay. That's a Crispin Glover is, is Charion or the the person who ferries you to hell. While you were gone, I said that to them. River yeah. of Sticks. Yeah, that's that's what it felt like to me as well. Yeah. Wait. So what what does the buffalo represent? The death of innocence. I mean, they literally are on the train of hell, looking out on souls that are pure and are free and a representative of what the West could be, and they're like, we're gonna fucking kill them, not for any sort of you know, monetary gain. Right, they're just they like, have they, no have, access they have no access to it. Need. It's just like, just shoot it. And that's what happened to the Buffalo. I mean, they oh, killed yeah. millions within years. I mean, they, yeah. they, they were extinct within years. Yeah. Gruesome. And even the set deck in some of the towns, you could see mountains of bone, hides just thrown out over the place. Like it is hell. 
Yeah, it's, it's muddy, it's mucky, disgusting, yeah. and and he enters with this plaid suit that everyone's just mm-hmm. like, "What'd you get that Cleveland?" He's like, "Yeah, yeah. I did. I'm from Cleveland." <laughs> so, what makes William Blake different? Why, when he gets to hell, is you know, is he not just like any other person who's subjected to hell, where he falls in line and becomes the accountant of the devil? Like, what makes him different? He's dead. Ooh. Go ahead. Okay, I think that this is a representation that in life, as we all are all experiencing, you go through the transition of hell to heaven within the lifetime. So, well, you aspire to, right? Yeah, I mean, hell and yes, you aspire to in a lifetime. But in this reality, it's, it's as if we're in a lifetime, which I think we all can relate to where being in hell is just the deepest, darkest places of our lives. But then we can find salvation. We can find life and goodness and joy and love and all these beautiful things. But you have to go through that arc. So it's a, it's like a full representation of living a life. But it's, I mean, it's very, you know, it does feel like a hell state. It actually feels like he's somewhere new, but it's really just another life you're living. So there's a key moment towards the end where uh, nobody's like, I notice you have a new weapon. And he's like, oh, yeah, you can have it. He's like, no, no, no. And he's like, no, you can. I, I used it to to kill a, a white man, another white man or, or whatever. And then Mr. And no, Mr. Nobody, <laughs> Jared Leto's like, uh, no, uh, nobody is like, um, you killed the, the white man? You know, you, you killed the white man? And he's like, yeah, I did. And then he kind of looks at him for a while and he's like, you know, and then he's kind of satisfied and he's like, we need to find a canoe. <laughs> and, and, and the reason why he says that next is because now he's ready for the next, like the next arc out of, out of his spiritual path. He's ready now because he killed that final sort of white man, which led, then led me to believe that all these men that he kills along the way are sort of different versions of himself that needed to die before he was ready to go on that canoe and be enlightened and go to heaven. So if we're exploring within that world, why, what are these different trials he's going on? Like for instance, there's two circumstances where he interrupts lovers. The first one at the very beginning of the film, I mean, he's laying with her, but then her ex lover comes home and he's in the middle of two lovers and his, response is to pull the trigger and to kill to get out of that situation and then later on in the film he walks on what he what appears to be like a bear like raping something or you know but then but then it's gary farmer it's nobody um just making love to another native american woman and uh and by some circumstance his gun malfunctions when he's trying to shoot nobody as he's charging towards him in his bear fur and then um and then he gets tackled but again he's interrupting two other two other lovers which i i'm i clearly haven't fully actualized this idea but there's something there like why what what is first of all the question is what are the trials he's going through why is he killing people in different moments and second of all why the interruption of of lovers like is that what he did in his real life did he did he have an affair did he interrupt something 
you know, what what is this representative of? of? Any ideas? I mean, I think it's I, I, I can go I can piggyback off of that and go into the the kills he does. I mean, if you look at all the people he's killed, it was uh, the three trappers. I think they were uh, where Iggy Pop made his fantastic uh, cameo uh, dressed as a woman. Uh, I think I think it is him dealing with his inner demons. I think you're right. I don't know what the lovers were. I think maybe that's kind of up to the audience. But the other kills that he does are killing his past demons, killing his idea of, you know, deception of living out in the West. What you have to do, he says, "No, I'm not going to do that." In fact, I sh- I shun your your needs and desires to do this. And then he even does it further, and he kills the representation. Does he kill the guy, Alfred Molina's character at the outpost, the guy who's selling smallpox blankets? Yeah, he kills him. He kills him. That's what I thought. Yeah, he kills him. him. Yeah, he kills him because he he knows he's a bad man. So he's becoming a good a force for good. And then I think that's what leads him to be kind of led into heaven at the end because he's kind of in this weird middle state where you don't know who he is and don't know who he, what he did. Well, so, you know, to start with Gabriel Byrne first too. You know, don't uh, a woman gives up her life. For him yes and you see the resonance on his face and then it's just sort of automatically kill and so i think there's a realization there like oh and then his um how he is how upset he is that the bounty uh is unfairly written it makes him seem yeah. like he's a murderer and in yeah. his head he's thinking i'm not a murderer uh, you know that was a righteous kill um and then that's where I'm on board with you guys because then the each of these killings then takes on are nuanced a little differently. It's now I'm now I'm now being shepherded by the spirit guide. So I now have people in pursuit of me. Um, the spirit guide can only go so far. Check on those men. You know, so it's you have to go this like I that's what I love about what you guys have offered because that's exactly it. It's like I can only go this far. You go down there and present yourself to them and then see what happens uh, and then right. watch it play out. And you then you watch it play out with Billy Bob and <laughs> Billy Bob. Yeah. So good. The two of them go, go on and shoot me. You're like one man, you know, three men who are seemingly, you know, coexisting well enough. And then all of a sudden they we add a fourth and then two wind up shooting each other to death. You're like, oh, wow. OK. So it was just interesting. These, you know, each of these steps, the death took on a different meaning and I love that. And I think he got realization. So by the time the marshals are there, you know, that that because he provides really that suit provides the only color for me in this monochromatic world. We I imagine it being multiple colors. But when those marshals show up, he is black and white, you know, without glasses. Have you read my poetry? There's an that, evolution. That is there. the most badass scene. Oh, it's so great. Ever. And you, you are spot on. I told Chris before we started, I mean, there's a moment that... Robbie Mueller, the cinematographer, captures of Johnny Depp's face. You probably saw it where you can actually see the lip gloss that they probably put on him just to mm-hmm. not dry him out. He's just got this dewy handsomeness to him. And you're like, wow, this kid is radiant on film. Unbelievable. And you've got one of the world's greatest cinematographers bringing your face to light. It's angelic. And then you get to that. You exactly. You said it, Yosh. You get to that moment. And I'm like, have you... Like, that's the moment you just wait for as an act. Have you read my poetry? <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's, 
It's a killer moment. Oh yeah. my god, so good. So, so what do we think the woman represents in this story? Because, because there's a significant moment when when nobody is relatively upset and disappointed is a better word. Yeah. When Johnny Depp starts tearing, when Johnny Depp cares about what he's wanted for, like what's the, what's the mishap there? Because nobody is clearly disappointed that he's still clinging on to his identity. I guess that's really what it is. Well, I think you, you, you're right. Like, uh, if that's what you're... I think you're asking a question you kind of know the answer to, and I think uh, because you, you're making me think that the, my spirit guide should be ahead of me, should just yeah. be, you know, every step... He's two steps ahead of me at all times and just curious to see what path I'm on. Again, he can stop at the path. If I decide to go this way, away from my spirit guide, fine. But I think... Um, yeah, he's upset, and I, you know, I don't, I can't, you know, an answer's not crystallizing in my head, but I think you're why, on to... Why do you think that her yeah. sacrificing her life is what was the sort of building block for him? The impetus to go? Yeah, yes. I think it's the sacrifice. It's like, um, it's like a sacrifice from such a loving place, mm-hmm. and that sets him on this journey. Mm. Like when when the man pulls out his gun and points it at the guy he's trying to go for this vengeance kill like how dare you be with my woman and she's like i don't love you anymore jumps in front of this guy in an act of love and self-sacrifice and then from there he gets shot and he's like what and he has to shoot out of self-defense and then he climbs out the window but he pins the rose to his heart to remember. I mean, I think it's a symbol of love, maybe God's grace for his life. Yeah, because clearly there's some humanity in him from the get-go. I mean, he's in a world of, uh, alone and afraid in a world he never made. Clearly the Alan Watts quote is evident here because that's that's kind of what I'm trying to figure out is like, why is he in hell to begin with? What did he do to get here? Mm-hmm. Because clearly there's humanity in him when he sees the girl fall in the mud He's there's no there's no there's no evil in him. He's like he cares about you know humanity and he helps her up and because he shows her that humanity, she in turn shows him humanity. And so why is there humanity in hell? Like that's that's why I initially went with purgatory because these are not all people who have fallen to the depths of hell. Some of these people are just lost, perhaps. Yeah, but can we relate to that, Josh? Like sometimes we don't deserve to be in a place that we find ourselves in. And yeah. it's about pulling ourselves out of that. You know, I don't think he necessarily did anything to get to these depths of hell, but it was the journey he needed to go on to rediscover himself mm-hmm. as this poet, as this as this person that he comes to realize. But he didn't deserve it, nor do we when bad things happen to us at certain times in our life. But we just find ourselves and we're like, wow, I have to get myself out of this mucky, muddy disgusting place and i put myself here maybe i made a choice maybe something happened to me but i'm still here and i have to conquer those demons i have to through love you know what i mean and that's what that sacrifice represents Mm. and boom and then his spirit guide finds him and it's like i'm gonna journey i'm gonna heal you and we're gonna move through this world together because god recognizes God doesn't just send a spiritual guide to anybody, right? I mean, that's sort of like an angel in hell helping him through, like a Virgil, like Chris said earlier. Like, God recognizes that this man has the potential 
you know, to climb to heaven. Um, yeah. Wow. So, um, did we miss anything? I mean, I was going to bring up the peyote, but I think that's pretty self-evident in itself. It's interesting that Jim Jarmusch chose not to have uh, Johnny Depp's character go through any distinct psychedelic transformation. Rather, it was the fasting. Yeah. It was yeah. the removal from culture, the removal from you know, feeding oneself man's food and clearing his palate that gave him his visions he could have easily made it about the peyote or a psychedelic mm -hmm. drug but no he, he chose it to just be the fasting which i think was ultimately a smart move yeah mm -hmm. i love that because he said you're not you're he took it and he's like well can i just have some i'm so hungry <laughs> like i just want something he's like you're not ready yeah not ready for this journey yet <laughs> but the fasting makes him trip balls a little bit you know oh, yeah and as somebody who's who fasts, you know, a few times a year, uh, you know, the most I've ever done was five days. But uh, something happens, starts happening to you. There's no doubt about it. So I can't imagine yeah. no water too. And I listened, I listened wow. to a Criterion interview um, with Gary Farmer, mm. and he fasted before shooting this film. Uh, I forget how many days it was, but he did no food, no water. I think he said it was three days. No food, no water for three days. Jesus. Um, and he accounted that on the third day, he saw this green orb, you know, show up. And he said that ever since then, he's wanted to try to find that green orb again by fasting. He's never had the courage to go there again. But uh, point being that these Native Americans, they would fast for spiritual journeys. Um, <laughs> and that is just something that we could have a whole podcast about what that's all about by by not by not eating and drinking you, you can go on these psychedelic journeys yo yosh how dope was this shot where he finds the baby lamb the saxophone oh, lamb yeah. whatever it is Bambi. Yeah, it's a, a doe you know it's got the shot right where so he happy you brought that up and and it's just laying there dead and he touches the blood and he like communes with it and then he just like gets behind it and just lays there with the, the dough, you know, and it's just that shot. I mean, you know, it's like you could search your lifetime to try to get shots like that for it to make sense, for it to just meld everything. And like that's yeah. so spiritual. That's such a representation. He was, you know, his whole life was part of this adventure. There's there's a, a communication that can come. That's why film is in my humble opinion, the most powerful form of communication that humanity has ever come across because it combines all these different art forms that touch on all of our senses. And that shot, I'm so happy you brought it up, is one of those opportunities that can translate and commune so much without words. And you can just like feel a message that words would never do the justice for. And, 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 and in that moment, it's like this type of message to where it's just like, while all this, while while we're about to go through this chaotic election, um, and we have these two Muppets running to be the the leader of the free world, and all this divisiveness, and we're all these like talking monkeys pretending to know what we're talking about, screaming at each other on a rock, hurling through space, doing spirals around a sun, and yet 
if we could all just look at this shot and recognize that this poor little Bambi that was most likely, well, it had a bullet wound in it, right? Yeah, it was probably just grazing with its mother, mm-hmm. innocence. I mean, just purity playing. Purity in shot by humanity. Yeah. And it's like, man. Shot through the heart and no one's fault. Well, you know, their fault. But like the Bambi has no, the little doe has no fault. You know, it's just a child. Yeah. To and come I, to the bullet. And for anyone who's done psychedelics, which I have and I have no problem admitting, those are the type of revelations you can have on psychedelics where you suddenly cuddle up with Mother Earth, whether that's a, a, a branch or a leaf or a colony of ants, you know, walking on a log. You can suddenly, suddenly cuddle up to something that otherwise you would just walk right over on your hike. You'd walk over it and you'd go about on your business and you'd think about how hot it is and you and you'd think about how uncomfortable you are and the spider web you just walk through. Or if you just stopped, instead of thinking about what am I supposed to be doing in order to feel like I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing or having fun or accomplishing something, but if you can just stop and smell the roses and sit and watch a colony of ants walking on a log or you cuddle up to a Bambi, you could have these profound realizations of what Mother Earth is trying to commune to you. And, and that scene, I mean, I should have ranked to this a masterpiece just because of that scene, now that, now that you bring that up. I mean, wow, yeah. Mm-hmm. Beautifully said. Um, before we move on, uh, obviously we got to just mention Neil Young. Uh, oh, music. One of the coolest soundtracks I've ever heard. Yeah. I want to download that. You, We talked about doing that Spotify playlist of the our top music yeah. of all these films. and. Man, just this whole, I need to listen to the whole album. I just want to p- put it on and like go edit some photos and just go about my day with Dead Man soundtrack. And do you know what you want to know what the coolest thing is? What? Neil Young improvised all of it. That's of course he did. It yeah. felt like you were just like it was just so perfect. It was so and, in and the If you moment. need proof of that, go to Criterion, go to the extra the extra videos they have there, and one of them is him walking into the studio. And the movie is on the all these different screens throughout the studio with in front of different instruments. And he's literally just like watching the movie and he'll walk up to an instrument while he's watching the movie and just start playing. Puts the guitar down, walks up to the piano while watching the movie. Just Yep. Dun, dun. I mean like that's like next level genius. It's amazing. Um Masterpiece, yeah. masterpiece. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Give it more points. It didn't. It didn't get there. It, it didn't get there. Shows, it didn't get there. Eight point eight, right? Eight point eight. Yep. That's a good day. In my nine point two. All right. Let's rest up with Once Upon a Time in the West. Oh boy, what a film! Once Upon a Time in the West. Sergio Leone. Eight. <laughs> Italy. Frank, send us. Did you bring a horse for me? <laughs> looks like we're... Looks like we're shy of one horse. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
too many. Ugh, Charles Bronson, man. Dude, this guy's eyes. Crazy. Bananas. What can I say? Yep. Oh, so good. So good. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's 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 almost like the the chaos of the of the humans. You know, like the, the I don't know the spinning of that wheel, the sound that that's making pre and post that in, incident is kind of just like, yeah, go ahead and do all your chaos, but the you know, the, the, the keep the turning. Wind, the wind yeah. will keep you know making the wheel turn. Yeah. Once Upon a Time in the West is an epic in storytelling. It tells a story of the harmonic, harmonic, harmonica wielding man who appears in the scene. This is actually the first scene in the movie, believe it or not. Uh, comes on the scene looking for a man named Frank. Frank, we learn, is in the employ of a big time businessman whose name is escaping me right now. I think his name is Mr. Morton, is his name, uh, who is financing the railroad going west in order to see the pacific ocean before he dies he is a man of means he is a man with power he's also a man with tuberculosis of the skeleton as he says um we come to find out that this harmonica man is kind of a do-gooder he saves a woman who unfortunately has a family that has just been murdered by some other people and there's these converging storylines that kind of coalesce into uh, the harmonica man saving uh, this woman and her now deceased family because she sits upon a pile of land that is worth a lot of money in this railroad situation. Uh, intersecting storylines and Henry Fonda as a villain play into this wonderful masterpiece of spaghetti western filmmaking. Uh, so the swift pole is ready to go. And Aaron, you are the first to go. You all right? I gave it a 7.9. Ooh, Aaron. Wow. Okay. Wow. Okay. Seven, I see you. I get the... It was okay. Yeah. yeah. It was okay. it was variants of good, yeah. uh, but not quite my type of movie. Okay. Cool. A little slow. We'll go into it. <laughs> all right. Close up. Close up. Here we go. <laughs> I gave it a 6.9. Wow. Wow. Okay. I voted lower. <laughs> uh, it's back to me. And Paul, you will round us out. Chris gives it a 9.3. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Paul, please, please, please help oh, you're me okay. out. Here. You're okay. You're okay. 8.5. Okay. <laughs> you're okay. All right. Well, okay. we can always rely on, on the on the ever polite <laughs> and safe Paul who likes every movie we watch. <laughs> Hey I man, do. we picked some baller movies. Yeah. That's all. Yeah, I'm no, this was, a this was a good great. It's a good movie. Great yeah. comeback, guys. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So let's figure out if this is going to surpass Dead no, Man. No way. Not with a six. Maybe. Nah. I'm an accountant, Chris. You're an accountant <laughs> from Cleveland. <laughs> all right. The final score for Once That's Upon a Time in the West. Is an 8.2. Oh, yeah, I know my numbers. So, All Dead right. Man remains and my poetry. In front. 
Dead Man is the front runner. So right now. just to recap, Chris, what are our final scores? We have an eight point eight from Dead Man. Yes, eight point eight from Dead Man. Oh, go ahead. eight point two from Once Upon a Time in the West, and a seven point seven from Wildlife. Oh, okay, for Wildlife. All right. So, um, so a masterpiece from Chris. Yes. Okay, let's let's start there. Um, I'll just give the floor to you. Thank you so much. I this is an epic in in every sense of the word. I think this movie, like we're talking film class musts. This is a must for me. This is you must watch this movie if you ever want to be a filmmaker. Be, just the visuals of it, the practicality of it, the performances of it. You can learn so much from this film, and it doesn't even fit into. I would think even the prototypical genre of a Western, it doesn't fit into that genre because it sets that genre. There are literally so many points in this movie. I was like, oh, this person pulled from that moment. Oh, Tarantino pulled from this moment. Yes. Oh, compositionally, the walking up to the house to kill the boy directly pulled from Seven Samurai. Directly pulled from Seven Samurai. Like there are, you know. Yeah, that, of, this pulled from that though. Seven yeah. Samurai didn't pull from this. But I'm, what I'm saying is like this. This is a co like collision. This is a bunch of shit mashed together. Confluence. And then and then it confluence. Thank you. And then it it, bl it blows it away with the way that it is produced. Like all the Aaron, things that I was. Go, what'd you say? Aaron, hit, play the word. We gotta play the word. Hegemony. <laughs> wait 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 wait. This is a hegemony of movies, bro. I mean, it kind of is. But like I. I challenge you, knowing who Henry Fonda is, to find a better portrayal of a vision than Frank. I I uh, I I don't disagree that Henry yeah. Fonda's uh, villain. Oh, amazing, amazing! Really, in the movie. really cool. Uh, Paul had told me previously when I was asking for good references on villains, classic villains. He told me about this one. I'm going to ask Paul a question here, but Chris, you're saying that this set the western. Well, this is a specifically a spaghetti western. Yes, and there's definitely lots of Italian influence in it. I mean, oh, of the course. scene, this, the scene where the family is where she finds her family and they're all laid out on the, they're all dead, you know, mm -hmm. and she and like the, even the music is like a little Italian. It's like, and then I was oh, like, oh, we're going into the Godfather now here. Okay, it's by Ennio Morricone. Yeah, right. Yeah, classic. So. Yeah. Um, but I don't think this set any kind of like Western though, because the good, the bad and the ugly was the movie that Sergio Leone made right before this. And in my opinion, the good, the bad and the ugly is a masterpiece and it's far superior to this. We can get into that. Okay. Um, let's go on. Uh, let me ask you this, Paul, and then we'll get back to you, mm -hmm. Chris. Uh, can we just get a little taste of Henry Fonda being anti-cast as the villain here? Like what had he done previously and why is this such a big deal? Yeah, so uh, probably for men and women of my generation, uh, you okay? Let's maybe the, think about the last movie he did, which I believe was on Golden Pond. He opposite uh, his daughter Jane. Um, we always saw, you know, my parents and my grandparents saw Henry Fonda a certain way. He played the president and fail safe. He always had these honorable statesmanlike roles. I was always the good guy. And the history behind this uh, is that Sergio Leone always imagined Henry Fonda playing the bad guy. What is interesting and what was revealed 
uh, later um, very slowly about the Fonda household um, is that he was overbearing and uh, the kids described him as a terrible father. Now, uh, you were very kind to your friend earlier, Yoshi. I will be kind uh, to someone who's no longer with us and say that uh, uh, for the better part of a day that I spent with this person, I can tell you almost authoritatively that uh, what was revealed through back in the day gossip hounds, because that's what life was like in the 70s and 80s about the Fonda household, that's kind of what it was like. So whether uh, that was known to Sergio Leone or not, but just to take someone who we all see a certain way and then to play him against type, if I'm answering your question, was uh, really captivating. And there is, uh, you could just, the, the sex scene uh, between he and Claudia Cardinale and what he's voicing to her is so dirty and carnal. I'm like, oh, I bet he's having fun with this. I bet he, as the older man, is looking at this beautiful 30-something woman and just going, I am, I am speaking the truth right now. And it's interesting because at different junctures, I've probably seen this movie five times. I can tell you at times I, I would just go around the house, you know, playing that music in my head. Um, and, <laughs> and talk about lifts. I mean, you don't have Dexter without... Dunk, 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 dunk. Mm-hmm. I mean, so I guess probably now maybe my, my, uh, my tabulation is, is maybe a little jaded having seen it for a while. So I am with Aaron that, you know, maybe there are parts that were long, but, uh, you know, all of Chris's notes, I'm right there with you. Uh, the, the music, uh, the use of music, the spare dialogue. Uh, the shots, I'm the close-ups. You, I mean, you know, I go, <laughs> Overplayed, oh my God. Like, man. I, I yeah. was so sick of that song by the end so of the movie. So sick of like, it, dude. Please, don't play it again. How oh many fucking God. times? We get it. It's like, yeah. it's like, it's I a understand. theme. It's, yeah, yeah, but like, dude, everything was so over-dramatized <laughs> and like, like done over and over and over. How many times are we going to like, I feel like the first 40 minutes of the movie is introduction to characters that aren't even in the film. It's like, let me do a 20-minute introduction to these characters, 20-minute introduction to these characters, 20-minute introduction to these characters, and it just keeps doing intros over intros. And then, like, three times we think we know who the bad guy is, and then that person joins uh, uh, Charles... Uh, what's Bronson. His, uh, Bronson, like and it's not really fully explained like is the girl good is the girl bad she's just a survivor is charles is bronson good oh wait he's mexican what <laughs> like he's playing a mexican and he doesn't even look mexican and then we find out in the last quarter of the film in a flashback that he, or actually the last 10 minutes of the film that he's a mexican and then it's just like that had the and then like what's his and then him and then he's saving henry fonda at one point obviously we find out because he wanted to be the one to kill him but it's just like aaron help me out what what are you no this film was whack i actually took me to (laughs) whack you say whack whack chris it was whack dude my first viewing of this film i was like oh this sounds this seems like a good nighttime film yeah the movie police are coming for you now okay (laughs) arrest me yeah (laughs) i don't care dude the first film okay so i'm like i've jumped in this at like 9 30 p.m i'm like oh this is gonna be great i'm just gonna like this is gonna be a nice nighttime movie 
I literally fell asleep the first 40 minutes of the film, like Josh was saying. Literally, like the sounds, like it was so slow. It was almost like a therapeutic, like meditation track. Yes. Like trip, <laughs> drop, trip. And like just all these, like, like it just was so slow. And I'm like, I literally would fall asleep to this every night if I could, like maybe just play the first hour but of the film. Let me just interject real quick. It could have been salvaged if the movie fucking had a story, if it was going somewhere, because you're setting the stage, you're setting the tone of what it, what, what it felt like to be, you know, in this time, in the Western, you know, like the, the, the sort of spirit of the tension that is built in this time. So I understand setting the stage with, with, with all this, you know, tension building, but Chris, what was the movie about? But it was masturbatory. I mean, the yes, sound it was. was very, it was also awful. Like the ADR for voices. Like, Oh the, my God. Yeah. How did that, how did that slip by? So I have, I have, I did a lot of research on this film cause I figured they someone wouldn't like it. In a booth. They did because they had to. Oh well, get out of here with your masterpiece. Yeah, yeah. What? Where was the budget? They didn't have a budget. No, for no, no. They they did have. So Sergio Leone is an Italian filmmaker. Yeah. And so a lot of the actors didn't speak English. So, for instance, the the woman Henry Fonda and and uh, no, the woman didn't speak or or she did and she had oh, a big accent. By the way, Dario Argento is attached to this film. This mm -hmm. the screenplay was based off of a story that he wrote. Dario Gento is, is weirdly attached to Westerns. Of course, he would go on to do Suspiria. Um, but apparently what he wrote was more like dreamlike. And I think that if they would have made that film, maybe this would have, because there was qualities of this that were cool that were dreamlike, but ultimately they tried. The idea was that Sergio wanted to make a film where the female was the lead role. I think they failed miserably in the execution of this. She was not the lead role. In oh. fact, she didn't even need to be there, dude. No, it was misogynistic, too. Yeah. I mean, they shit on that girl, and she was the only female in the character, but it was so disgusting to watch. And it's her Every fault that the dubbing was bad? Is that what you're telling me? It's her fault because she's Italian? <laughs> like She spoke with an accent. I don't even think her acting was that great. I just kept terrible. seeing a woman Awful. trying to play dramatic and... I'm so mad at you. And like, but there was a misogynistic tone through this whole movie, which made me just feel gross. You know, it was just like, this is so like a bunch of old dudes getting like the really exactly. hot young actress on set. And yeah. we're all, you know, there's going to be scenes where like, it just feels like she is the prey. Couldn't I mean, you picture so like the poker games they were having between takes or like after after shoots and they were just like all proud of what they were yeah, doing there like together. grabbing ass. You know they were. They're drunk all the time. Like, I don't <laughs> know, that's how I felt too. Yeah. Uh, I don't, Clearly it's two versus two here. Yeah, though. there was no intimacy coordinator back in those days. I mean, you know, she knew what she was on. <laughs> she was saddling up for She her. knew I mean, what she was doing. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Wow. You I mean, know what on. you saddled up for. <laughs> yeah. Um, if they grab your ass, just smile and don't make a big deal out exactly. of it. Chris, what was this movie about? Help me out. It was a fucking epic. It was one man's epic journey to redemption movie. by It was a revenge people. story that should have lasted 30 minutes, not three hours. No, okay, so there's layers to it. The okay, names, help me out. The names out. that he gave Frank. Who? Yeah. What's your name? Walter, I can't think of one. So Walter Goggins, he's like, dead man. And he gives, those dead were man. the men that he was with when they killed his brother. 
those were the men that he didn't he should have pieced it together but he was so focused on trying to get wealth and attain things he couldn't have because he was an animal henry fonda's character frank was an animal the society that mr morton the rich guy did it was failing he was a crumbling man he literally had a disease that was eating him from the inside out and he tries to like fuck Frank over by using the the money and using the things that he has. But what does it do? It kills him because Cheyenne comes in and shoots up all those people. And like, yeah. yes, ultimately it, it leads to Frank being alone. The things like not working out, but in the, the crux of the movie, Charles Bronston's character, the harmonica man is allowed to have his his end where he shoots Frank. He is the one who kills Frank. And the very moment where he's like, who are you? You need to tell me. He doesn't tell him anything. He just shoves the harmonica in his mouth. That is one of the most satisfying endings, in my opinion. That scene should have taken place earlier in the movie. Exactly. It would have been more impactful. It. That that, that oh, scene, or the, the flashback of him holding his brother or his dad up, you know, from being hung and then the harmonica getting shoved in his mouth. Like we should have got that information a long time ago. And he shouldn't have been a Mexican or you should have hired a Mexican to be the actor because when the flashback happened, this was me. What? Who's Who's this guy? Cause that's not Charles Bronson. So as soon as they shoved the harmonica in, I'm like, yeah, who the fuck is this guy? I actually, I actually agree with you. I okay. think I think that his character should not have been Mexican. I think that his character should have been Native American, yeah. because then that I would add another layer to then Harry. Then, then go get Babe Gary Farmer to play the role. He wasn't born yet. Okay, <laughs> but <laughs> so, again, this is another thing of 1968 Hollywood. People thought that Charles Bronson was Native American because of his face that's what my problem with this movie was right there it was just big hollywood my same problems with treasure of sierra madre these big hollywood films don't you dare josh don't you dare (laughs) but dude they're touching on the same themes these themes of greed and people who are being eaten alive by their desire for wealth the same at the turn of the century the same time period there there will there will be blood did it way, 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 way. This way. was 1960. Yeah, exactly. Don't overthink this. Stop overthinking this. This is the okay. 60s. You know, whatever it was. United Artists got a budget. Sergio, you want to do a movie? We can attach Henry. Yes, Bond. I want to go to the movie. I want to go to the movies. You know, great, great. Don't you know, he's going to retire out of the business. He's already done, like you said, he's done the the, the spaghetti trilogies. Here's one last stand. He goes, okay, great. I know the American sensibility. They don't want three hours. I'll do it in two hours and 45 minutes. He puts this thing together. This is the, it's the Western genre filmically probably was dead after, I don't know, after Gene Hackman, like Clint Eastwood, high, Unforgiven, yeah. maybe. I don't know. But, okay, give I, us some context. I don't think Aaron and I know as much about Westerns as you guys Well, do, that's so why I'm, I'm I, it was funny, Go, because going into this, I'm thinking, well, how how far removed were the '60s from like a like a western? Like if we if we explore another western, there are John Wayne. There's let's say what is it, Big Jake? I think is a western that yep. that where you see industry intersecting with the farmer and the cowboy, uh, where the cowboy says, "What's that? Oh, that's an automobile, Daddy." So. It's the 60s. We're maybe even realistically not too far removed from a Western. But those that was... Is the Spaghetti Western an attempt at a revival of the Western genre? Yes. 
Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's essentially what it is. Done in Italy on a lower budget uh, at a time when, um, yeah, things were just cheaper. And you had a landscape that you could, you know, duplicate parts of Italy, duplicate parts of Spain to look like uh, parts of Arizona uh, or Utah. But John or Wayne is dead and Clint Eastwood's retired. Is that where we're at? No, just, Clint no, Eastwood no, is, is a product of the Spaghetti Western. A product of the Spaghetti Westerns. Of that's course, right, he was good, the right. bad, and the ugly was right before right. this. Yes. Right. So I'm just trying to think what, what the last great Western that you might have seen even as kids. I mean, for me, the Western was a big deal. We grew up, uh, you know, we saw reruns of black and white Westerns. We grew up with Western serials. I mean, I grew up with Cisco Kid. I grew up with Lone Ranger. There was something about, you know, Cowboys and Indians was a part of my life. So uh-huh. to see what I then saw as something like s- close to cinema verite. Like, oh, like I could imagine this happening in real life. Like a bad guy comes into town and tries to take things over and... This felt so far from cinema verite. How dare you? Well, that's what I'm saying. That's why it's not. That's not the right category. But it's like as a kid, like trying to imagine what it was like on a western town. Huh. I wonder what this was like. I so, see what you're getting at. You know, though. like because they did. They did do a good job of building that tension. Or like one. Right. One positive I will say, and there were more than one positive. You know, I'm obviously trying to prove the point of this not being as good as you guys think it is. But there were things that I that I you know. The cinematography was great. The, the music, the, the sounds did work in moments. And one thing, one thought that I had. The blanket's coming off. Eugene. That they did a great job of was um, sort of this idea that I happened upon where like to be the ultimate badass in the Western world at this time where you are the one who's going to outshoot everyone and who's not going to give in to fear. Cause that's really what we're exploring here when you're in the Westerns is who's going to give in to fear first. Cause that person's going to die. Mm-hmm. And so the person who doesn't give into the fear, they, you could say is within the spirit of God because they are ever trusting of their abilities and of their path of, of righteousness, if you will, because they because that's what Charles Bronson's character shows at the end of the day is like he is firm in his faith that he will walk out of this alive. Who's going to show fear first? And ultimately, Henry Fonda and Charles Bronson characters are the ultimate sort of Jedi and Sith who are closest to assuming the power of no fear. Of course, one is abusing that power and one is isn't. But... um so there were, you know, things that, you know, this film did to me that were ultimately positive, but show me on this doll where this film touched you, Yoshi. Cuz I'm failing to see where you like it. I think That's funny. I think That's if you funny. were to remake this film today, it would be an a mini series. Yeah. And it yeah. would be dark. Yeah. It would be super dark and you like it basically would be Deadwood. There's no story. You ever watch Deadwood? I haven't, but it's on my list. Yeah. It's like I Shakespeare think, in the West, right? Yes. Oof. And that's what I felt. During. That seems interesting yeah. to me. That's yeah. compelling. So, yeah. but there, yeah, that's again. what this film is missing. Shakespeare, a writer. We need a, we need a writer. What do you mean? He's not a good writer. Come on. Was, <laughs> but The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is a great film. Have yeah, you he did, he's he did got all of his wounds. He's Coriolanus. He this didn't is write perfect. Good, the Bad, and the Ugly? What? Who wrote Good, Bad, and the Ugly? I don't think it was Sergio. I think it was. Well, Sergio. that would make sense, wouldn't it, Aaron? Yeah. Aaron. It Aaron would make sense it. if Sergio didn't write the movie that was good because he wrote this one. 
the ugly. I just, yeah, I, I agree with Yosh. I don't think the story held up. Like, I wasn't interested. It just seemed whatever. Well, but let's really, I mean, let's 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 cut the shit. What was? Uh, Chris already took a crack at it and failed. Paul, what? Oh, is okay. <laughs> no, I mean, obviously, it's like a revenge film, but like, yeah, I'm, yeah, that's it. it, it you, don't overthink you, it. You, you, yeah, don't overthink it. You are an incredibly intelligent and complex man. Um, you uh, dissect these movies brilliantly. Um, it is. You have okay, I don't, an academics take on these movies. It's inspiring. This, though, is just. This is you just downshift. Just keep downshifting till you get to something a little more, even <laughs> get to neutral. I'm able to enjoy right. films. I know, and I'm not saying you're, you know, you're, you don't them have the sensibility. Without to be this intellectual fucking <laughs> thing, but but it, like, a, what's an example of a film we've watched that I've liked that is, you know, okay. But to a degree, this this film maybe panders to its audience. We we had I can see you know this opening in a movie and somebody's this is the kind of spirited talk somebody has. That, Henry Fonda's a bad guy and. You know, people going. I want to see him as a bad guy, and and just seeing, it. it to, you could argue, yes, you could say this is a trope that we've seen before. Clint Eastwood and Sergio have done this better, and you know, in uh, you know, fistful of dollars, few dollars more. You know, good, the bad, and the ugly. We got it. We've seen it. I just think it was. You know, this is big budget Hollywood putting a star against type uh, with a the director. Yeah, hot girl. This has all the attendant girls. And then you get to, you know, listen, for a lot of people, it's the only time you're going to see Jason Robards. I mean, this, he's a god. He is, is he's is an absolute genesis, god. Is this the genesis of Marvel movies? What do you mean? Is it sort of the same? Because, like, like from what Paul's saying, like, this is, this is a movie where you go in and you sit and you, and you, and you strap yourself in in the roller coaster and you just go on for the ride and you're not there to, you know, have any sort of, feelings or, or walk away from this you know all right marty thing. you're going to eat the popcorn and just go along for the ride like an avengers movie right is that what this is okay okay martin like it is. yeah it, i didn't feel well, anything i didn't okay. care when any character died didn't hit me exactly like, oh, even the kid you mean the, the beginning? harmonica guy died he didn't know the kid the redhead kid the redhead. Yeah, no i'm looking down. at charles bronson his cast character name is Harmonica. Like, are yeah. you kidding me? Yeah. Well, that's kind of badass. Come on. No, cool. it's not. And not one guy's name is Cheyenne. I am. So how lame is that bar scene where nothing happens, but they just like threaten What, we get oh. Lionel Stadler in there? Come on. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Johnny sure. Depp walks into a bar and gets a bottle and they take a bottle away and he walks back out of the bar. Yeah. Come on. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, Jason Robards, who played... Uh, Manuel Gut- Gutierrez, who's Cheyenne. Cheyenne. Yeah, that's Cheyenne. Yeah, mm-hmm. great performance. Oh, I think amazing. he was the best. I think he was the best actor in the film. One hundred percent. Now here's my question for you. <laughs> Maybe right behind Henry Fonda, Chris. Yeah, I think he he was the most realistic. See, this is what I'm saying. All these performances feel way out here. Mm-hmm. The nucleus performance, the person who's really bringing things into reality, yeah. which is where I need things to be in order to enjoy. <laughs> okay is Jason Robards. Now, yeah. help me understand this, because I actually don't understand how yes. what happened here. Well, who is he, and why was he bad and then good? What happened there? I missed that. So he was the, the town, like, he was the pre- previous person who owned the town. He has a gang, Cheyenne's gang. Frank uses his gang as a way to stage these murders. 
So uh, when the kids and the, and the dad are murdered, they blame it on Cheyenne's gang. So they immediately hate Cheyenne's gang. Gangs in the West weren't necessarily always bad. Obviously, they did a bunch of robbing, but they tried to not be dicks. They tried to just kind of operate out of outside of society. So typically like a mafia kind of thing, kind of. Yeah. yeah. And so Cheyenne pays a visit to uh, the woman who's I can't even remember what her character's name was uh, in this movie. Uh, and he's like, hey, I don't do things like that. I could kill you right now, but I'm not gonna. Uh, and then he starts to kind of question why do you have this? Like, why do you want to stay here? This is really stupid. And then she confides in him her story. You know, she was a prostitute in New Orleans. And then I'm sorry, she, why is he interested in her to begin with? Why is he pretty? Well, because he wants, he, no, he wants to clear his name. He's like, I didn't murder your family. I don't know who's trying to blame this on me, but I do things differently. Okay. Okay. Um, and then he has the best line in the movie. He goes, you remind me of my mother. She was the best whore in, in the city, but she was also a great mother. Which yeah. I was like, what? Yeah, <laughs> like, that, that was funny. That's such that a great funny. line. It like, it's a great line. Like, but I, I thought he was a whore with her at that point. I didn't. Oh no, he, he was sincere. But then he, but then him and the gang hold hold off. Like, like they're waiting for her to leave to kill her. Right. They're, yes. they're in the hills waiting for her to leave, and then she, and then. That's why Harmonica's like, you don't want to leave yet. Because he knows they're out there still. Yeah. So at this point, they're still planning on killing her. And yeah. then, wh where does the turn happen? Why does he go and save Harmonica? Why does he go and save Harmonica? He saves Harmonica on the train. Harmonica gets held captive by, by Henry Fonda. Right, oh. right. And all of a sudden, without any explanation, he's on Harmonica's team. Well, well yeah, cause the, because of money. Yeah. <laughs> Because they're all after money. randomly he was like hero for him. So, so he saw harmonica as an opportunity to win. Yes. Uh -huh. So uh, to answer your question, yes, this was one of the first movies written almost entirely by Sergio Leone. That's what I'm telling you guys. Like yeah. there's no writing. Oh, I don't Sorry. know, Paul. I should, just, I should just take a fucking Valium before okay. I watch these films. Okay, all right. So but, I don't have to feel right, So I won't anything. recommend Stalag 17. And, uh, <laughs> But like, no, I, I kind of agree with that. But because because of Fistful of Dollars and the entire Dollars trilogy is based off of Yojimbo. Mm -hmm. So it's a samurai film. Yeah. So uh, in this movie, it's technically a spaghetti Western, but it's also one of the first ones to shoot in America. Yeah. It was shot in Utah and Arizona. Look, around it's not like where I'm you are the genre. I've said three times that I think the good, the bad, and the ugly is the best western of all time. It's okay. an incredible film, and you know why? Because it has a real story, and there's three archetypes with three amazing performances. Cyclops. <laughs> I, just, and, I think uh, you're blind to the truth, Yoshi. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps I, I am. Stop Perhaps. this! I think Dead Man is the greatest western. Right. Oh, western. it's not a western. It's yeah. not. It a western. is. It literally is classified as a western. On John, it's a psychedelic western. Yeah. yeah, it's postmodern. It's yeah. yeah, it's it's. it's, it's I wouldn't say me. it's a western. Yeah. Like but I said, I'd say my, it was my leash. To... I I'm going to derail the conversation really quick. I think this is why everyone, if they enjoy video games or they enjoy storytelling of video games, needs to play Red Dead Redemption Two because it takes the ideas from Dead Man, it takes the ideas from a few uh, Good, Bad, and the Ugly, and this film, and then mashes them together into an interactive playing experience, which is amazing. Always there to back up the video game industry. That's right. Chris. That's right. <laughs>
Uh, all right, guys, let's find out. This was an, an absolutely phenomenal show, guys. We all brought the heat. Uh, I think that's a result of having three, uh, two good movies and another one. Um, <laughs> no, just kidding. Uh, three great movies. Um, so let's find out what we're watching next. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I know we've had some conversations off air about changing the format of the show. Until we really nail that, let's just draft three films and then we can talk off air about how we're going to go about uh, recording those conversations. Are can you, you guys still see the modern and two randoms or how does that work? You know what? Um, maybe we should have talked about this more, but I, I'm sort of of the mind at this point, guys, that we have all these films in here. We should just go through them. Let's just yep. go through them all. What do you say? I say that's great. Yeah, I'm down. I just, it's nice. I really like uh, keeping it. It has been nice, huh? Yeah. But I don't, I don't know if we have too many more moderns in this, in this pool right here. We that's do. All right. But it depends yeah, on what do. you consider modern. We've got some good stuff in here, guys. Let's just see what happens. To Mama right. Tambien in 2000. The wheel. There we go. Spin the wheel of us. I'm going to write him down. Ooh, and one of a modern story. Here we go. The first one picked is Sidewalk Story. Oh, there we go. Yes. Sidewalk Stories. Sidewalk Stories. So so Chris is obviously going to fill us in on what this is about, but from what I understand, this is like a modern attempt at a Chaplin-esque type film mm-hmm. um, about, well, Chris is about to tell us. A nearly silent comedy filmed in black and white follows a street artist who rescues a baby after her father is murdered. The artist then sets off to find the mother, but first has to learn how to care for the child. Ultimately, he ends up in a horse-drawn chase of the murderers. Mm. Sidewalk stories. Can we get a poster in a year from you? 1991. Okay, so there's our modern film, Aaron. It all worked out in the end. Okay, good. I'm okay with that. No, you're right. It is 1989. My apologies, Paul. Okay, I'm not okay with that. That's before I'm born. That does not count as modern. Uh, That's the year I was born. All right, fellers, let's get this up over here. Yeah, 1989, modern, right? Yeah, (laughs) for sure. Uh, It says the moving and funny adventure of a tramp and a little girl. So maybe it's uh, inspired by uh, the kid by Charlie Chaplin. Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. It looks intense. Yes. Let's find out what's our next film. Cinema Paradiso. Oh! Oh, La Dolce. La Dolce Vida. All right. So I hear, <laughs> I hear rumors that this is loosely based off of Dante's Inferno. I think you're right. But it's like a comedy. Uh, This one actually has a pretty short synopsis. La Dolce Vida is a series of stories following a week in the life of a philandering paparazzo journalist living in Rome. Can you imagine that Fellini would do something like that? Can you imagine Fellini makes a movie about a philanderer? How many Fellinis have we seen so far? Just La Strada? Just one. Yeah. Okay, who liked La Strada? Remind me. Or no, we've seen two. We've seen uh, La Ventura, didn't we? Is that a Fellini? Gosh, no, that's not Fellini. Would... So just La Strada. Mm-hmm. Okay, I like that. Who liked that? Uh, I did. I didn't care for it. Okay, so let's get. So Aaron gets another shot here. I will yeah. say, 
that I tried watching this film about a year ago, and I'm, I might have been too high because I turned it off about a half an hour in, <laughs> but I'm happy to be in a sober state now and giving it another try. All right, good. All well, right. if not, we can sub, sub in eight and a half. That, would, that might be. Oh, That's well, true. wait, we didn't watch that together? No. No. I, well, I don't, oh, what a I don't film. smoke. But yeah, it's a great film. Eight That's and a half is great. Eight and a half is great. La Dolce Vida. Yeah. All right, cool. Mm-hmm. We're in. Mm-hmm. Have you seen this, Paul? Uh, a long time ago. It's foggy. What okay. Foggy, foggy. 1960. 1960. The year Let's of... go. Sunset Boulevard. Let's go. Last film. Oh, or Earrings of Madame Day. Yeah, and if you need a... Whoa. Keaton? Oh, Keaton. Keaton. We got Keaton. <laughs> yeah, Buster Keaton, Keaton, the general. So that's interesting. We have the Chaplin-inspired modern film, and then mm-hmm. we have the oldest film in our catalog, right? Mm-hmm. Or yes, second it is. oldest? It's the oldest. Oh, it's the oldest. Wow. It is the oldest, oldest the, film in our catalog. The horse and buck, buggy one. Nineteen uh, twenty-six to nineteen twenty-seven, I believe, unless I am mistaken. Phantom, Ca- <clears throat> Phantom Carriage is older, I think. Well, let's yeah, find out. Carriage is nineteen twenty-one. You're right. Aaron's a smart boy. He's a smart boy. I just remember things. <laughs> just so, really good at remembering. <laughs> Paul, you've seen The General, right? No, I have not. Oh, well, yep. cool. Virgin. I thought Virgin it was you that brought this to the catalog. No, I can't take credit for it. I can only take credit for the Once Upon a Time in the West. Once Upon a Time in the West. That's all <laughs> I can take credit for. Once Upon a Time I don't know if you want to own up to that right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, The General is a 1926 silent comedy film inspired by The Great Locomotive Chase, which is the first, uh, regarded as one of the first blockbusters of film. It is literally a, cha- a train going at the screen. Uh, it is a true story of an event that occurred in the American Civil War. The story was adapted from the memoir The Great Locomotive Chase by William Pettinger. The film stars Bruster Keaton, who co-directed it with Clyde Buckman. Now, this is going to be very interesting for us being, um, I would say, veterans of Chaplin at this point. It's in two of his biggest films. So now we can see his biggest rival, Buster Keaton, who I have heard that many people in the industry prefer to Chaplin. I've never seen any of his films, so I'm very curious to see how he holds up. Supposedly a very fun, funny man. But on November 8th, weeks from today, bop, bop. these four people you're looking at right now are going to watch The General. We're going to watch Sidewalk Stories, and we're going to watch La Dolce Vida, and we're going to tell you guys what we think. We're going to find the mean average of those three films of our personal rankings, and we're going to analyze and dissect them and perhaps take a volume and just not overthink <laughs> things. Just watch. <laughs> Um, I'm in. That was a phenomenal show, guys. That was a fun month. Hopefully, this next two weeks uh, holds up. Um, should be fun. And uh, we will see you guys in two weeks. Freeze frame out. Hegemony. 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 Hegemony.